We are comparing the parallel between the. Everyone has a paper? Yes. Were you yesterday? Well, we have more papers. We have more papers. Okay. The tzaddik. The tzaddik is someone who has the godly soul has defeated the animal soul, but who has bad meaning that the animal soul has just been subjugated, not transformed. With the wicked person who has good, the rush who has good, which means the animal soul has conquered and defeated the godly soul, but the godly soul has simply been subjugated, not that the godly soul has vanished. And so, and then we, it's one page. And then we have how the, the, just like the subjugation of the animal soul by the godly soul has various degrees to it, so to the subjugation of the animal soul, of the godly soul by the animal soul have differing degrees to it. Um, and then the last thing we spoke about in class, which I want to reiterate to make sure we're all on the same page, is that there is a very big difference between the animal soul becoming subjugated by the godly soul versus the godly soul being subjugated by the animal soul. Because the godly soul has a genuine agenda, which is the absolute devotion to God and God alone in every respect of a person's life. The animal soul is simply is there to obstruct that. So, in order for the animal soul to be subjugated, there could not be any room in a person's life for anything other than God. So they could not feel any desires or attachments to anything that is not godly. And if a person does feel any desires or attachments to anything that is godly, then clearly the animal soul has not been subjugated to the godly soul. It still has some sort of ability to um, obstruct the godly soul's agenda. Yes? Wouldn't that be the thing That's right. right. That's what we answer. And on the other hand, sub- the, the subjugation of the godly soul happens merely by the fact that God has become secondary to anything. Right? The minute that something else can take priority in a person's life over their connection to God means the godly soul has become subjugated. The godly soul um, is, is playing by someone else's rules. And the evidence for that would be sin, right? Sin is when um, I act not in accordance with God's will. And that means clearly something is more important to me than my connection to God. And, that does, and so if you think about that, it already creates a space for the baby in chapter 12, which is going to be someone who neither soul is subjugated to the, either. Okay? There is going to be space for that, but we'll stay for that for chapter 12 when we get to that. So... In experience, when the, God, when the animal soul is subjugated, just one second, when the experience when the animal soul is subjugated, a person is, as the, as the author said in chapter 10, a person doesn't feel like they have an animal soul at all. In contrast, when the godly soul is subjugated, you could very much still feel your godly soul. There's no, there's no, the, the, the godly soul can be in a, a vibrant experience in the person's life while still being subjugated in a way that the animal soul cannot if it's subjugated. So the conceptual idea of subjugation is parallel, but the experience is very different. Yes. So if you have a desire, that's just even the desire that you don't act on it, is that still Russia? Russia. Russia? N- n- that's what we'll get into in chapter... No, but then we get into the question is why you don't act on it. If you don't act on it because your, your, your parents are watching you, then, <laughs> then that's not an indication of your, your state relative to your souls. That's an indication of not wanting to look bad in the eyes of another person. Right. Okay. Fine. So what, what the author was going to do now in, is he's going to give us the 
the two extremes of this Russia of the Teva, the Russia who has good, the Russia whose godly soul is subjugated but not act, but not um, has not departed, not vanished. So we're gonna get the highest extreme. In other words, the person who the subjugation is the most mild form of subjugation. And then we're gonna to get to the ultimate form of subjugation. But it's still subjugated, it's not vanished. Okay? And then you'll see that most of us are somewhere in between that range. We are not all the way over here, we're not all the way over there. Okay, good. Um, there is the person, that beginning of the paragraph, in whom the said subservience and nullification are in a very minor way. And even these are not permanent or recurrent at frequent intervals, but on rare occasions, the evil prevails over the good and conquers the small city that is the body. Yet not all of it, but only a part of it, subjecting it to its evil discipline to become a vehicle and garment, turn the page, wherein one of the soul's three garments mentioned above is clothed, namely, either in deed alone or the commission of minor transgressions, and not major ones, God forbid, or in speech alone, in the utterance of something that borders on slander and scoffing and the like, or in thought alone, in the contemplation of sin, which are more serious than actual sins. Okay. We'll stop here. So you have a person that once in a while, in infrequent intervals, right, the person commits one kind of small sin, either a sin in action or a sin in speech or a sin in thought. Okay. Now, what I want to talk about is this notion of intervals. That's what I want to start with first, and then we'll move on to other things in the text. Is this person, if you look at the text, there seems to be a contradiction, okay? Um, first off, he, he, he talks about this person saying that the animal soul, the, sorry, the godly soul has become subjugated and subservient to the animal soul. That's this person, right? But then he says that that subservience happens in a minor way um, that are not permanent or even at frequent intervals, but on rare occasions. Well, if it's on rare occasions, then how does that describe the person as a whole? Okay, let me, let me use a, 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 a concrete example. If a person once in a while gets angry, would you describe them as an angry person? No. No, right? So if the animal soul is able to subjugate the godly soul on rare occasion in a very minor way, why does that become the description of the person as a whole? Right? So you start off describing the person as a whole and then you're... Now, people can change, right? So let's go back to the example. Like you got a person who's an angry person and they really work on themselves and they're no longer an angry person. That, that could happen, right? And you could have a person who's a Russia and becomes not a Russia, okay? And we're going to talk about that when we get to chapter 12 and onwards. But we're describing the person that throughout this entire span of this, uh, of this person's life, other than that making that radical change, they're considered a rush, a wicked person, meaning the animal soul has succeeded in subjugating the godly soul. And yet, we're saying the subjugation happens moment, in rare moments, occasionally. It seems inconsistent, yes? Okay. So... When a phenomena occurs, the question we want to ask ourselves, is that phenomena reflective of an underlying state of affairs? 
Or is that phenomenon an aberration? Okay, so I'll give you an example. Okay. Um, if you have a whole city burned down, is that, that's not something that happens every day, right? Okay. Um, is that abnormal or is that normal? I mean, does, even if, it, if, if the city burns, it's not like cities are going to burn down every two days, right? Mm -hmm. But is that a normal occurrence or an abnormal occurrence? Abnormal. Well, it depends. If you have a, one of those old shtetls they had in Eastern Europe, then you could expect that, you know, is it either going to be this decade or it'll be the next decade? What's going to happen? The whole thing's going to burn down. Why? Everything is made of wood. Everything is in close proximity. And how do people heat their homes? With open fires. Hmm. It's just a matter of time before something happens, right? On the other hand, if you have a city, like a, 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 a modern city made with bricks and, and concrete and things like that, right? Like you would need something like a, 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 like a war or something to cause a city to burn down, right? It, it, that, right? You see, there's a difference here? Yeah. So it's true both the things are not occurring frequently, but there is a very difference. The shtetl burning down is a feature of the shtetl. Hmm. This is why like, one of the annoying things, like for instance, Chabad history, there's a lot of writings that the, the Rebbe has produced that we don't have. You know why we don't have them? Oh, no. The fires. For instance, the Alter Rebbe wrote a, 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 a compendium of Jewish law, and he's a compendium of Jewish law known as the Shulchan Harav, and he wrote that um, when he was quite young, in his 20s. And then he wrote a later version, which was his final rulings. And, and we don't have the later version, except for four chapters, because it was all burnt. Okay? And so there's this constant thing. And uh, you know, every few decades, the, the, the village burns down. right? So, and you say, well, I mean, if the village keeps burning down every few years, even though it's an infrequent thing, it's a feature of how the village is constructed and village life. And if we want to stop that, we need to radically restructure, you know, how we build the houses, how close they are to the houses, how we heat the homes, etc. right? Okay. That makes sense? Mm -hmm. Okay. So, if a person's animal soul was able to get them to sin on rare occasion. Is that because something unusual happened on that rare occasion? Or is that infrequent occurrence reflective of some underlying substrate? Right? In other words, there's something going on between the relationship between the animal soul and the godly soul. That means eventually at some point, things are going to go south. Things are going to get bad. So even though you don't see the manifestation, right? Again, like the village, right? You know, the village doesn't burn down every Tuesday. But the way the village is set up, the way the village is designed, it's only a matter of time. Again, it's right on the scale of decades, but it's going to burn down. And everybody knows it. Everybody's aware of that. Okay? Uh, I'll give you another example, which is a little more tragic, but it illustrates a similar type of thing. Um, how do we relate as a culture to the, the death of infants? If I ask you to say, like, we use one word to how we relate to that. Tragic, right? Go back 100 years and then earlier, any time from 100 years, do people relate to it as tragic? Sad, but not tragic. Why? Because it's so common. Because it's common, right? Now, that, mean, that doesn't mean, like, every child died. But, like, you know, if you're going to have, like, a lot of kids, probably some are going to die in infancy. That's just kind of how it works, right? 
And that has to do with, again with the way people lived, right? It's it, in the nature of, you know, whether it's, it's, it's nutrition and hygiene, all these types of things, a lot of them do with hygiene, right? Plus the, plus the discovery of antibiotics, right? Okay. So the Alter Rebbe is trying to say by this apparent contradiction is that the occasional sin, you should not think of it as something happened. And all of a sudden I said, no, not something happened. The underlying problem manifested itself. But, it, but the manifestation is an infrequent and rare manifestation because the problem is in a very subtle way. Okay. So in other words, the animal soul has been subjugating the godly soul all along. It's just, it only shows, you only see real concrete evidence of that once in a while. Okay. Now, why is it that a person would sin only once in a while and a very minor sin? Like, why would that be? Why would it be the case? Let's, so, so use one example. Let's take um, the example that he gives where a person commits a minor seed in deed alone. Let's use that example. Okay, so let's first understand, what does it mean to commit a minor sin in deed alone? They don't sin in thought, they don't sin in speech. So not sinning in thought means they don't actually think about it. It's not a person who like, they really want to sin, they think, they fantasize about sinning, they're they interested in it. accidentally flip off the light switch on Shabbos. Well, no, because accidentally we're not going to include. Okay, we're not including. We're not going to include accidentally. Okay? Impulsive. It's an impulsive sin. It's in the moment. Okay. In other words, like this. Let's, 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 use, let's use a Shabbos example. This is a very good example, okay? Um, the... The, the halacha is, I mean, like, this is a very, very minor sin. The halacha is that once you've lit candles, you've accepted upon yourself the laws of Shabbos, even though Shabbos has not started yet, okay? It is also the case that it is forbidden on Shabbos to, if you have, like, a, a nail that's, like, a little bit, like, cut off, to rip it off or tear it off or bite it off or cut it off or anything like that is forbidden, Okay? So what happens? You just lit candles. You lit candles early even, right? It's like about 40 minutes before Shabbos actually starts. Right? And then you like notice that like you've got a little bit of an annoying little hangnail, a little, little hangnail, right? And you feel this urge and like you know it's wrong. You're like, it does this once and you do it. And that's it. And for the next 10 years, you never sin. Right? It wasn't like, you're not... You're not, your inner life is not a, you're not inner life thoughts and fantasizing about doing things that are wrong. You're not speaking negative things. There's, a, there's an urge to do something. It's just really irksome. It's really bothersome. And you can allow yourself to just break rules just this once in this little tiny thing. It's not even a biblical violation. And then, and then you realize it's wrong. You don't do it again and for 10 years. And then after 10 years, something else like that happens again. Well, what was go, well, what's going on there? Why does that happen? Was that because like something unusual happened at that moment? Just for that moment, you just say. Uh, but why? Why? Your animal soul, like takes over, is more vibrant than. And the rest of the ten years, it's not more vibrant. It's like a different balance. Explain what you mean. What? Explain what you mean. It's a different balance. So that's actually what the altar is not saying. Okay. What the altar is saying is like this. Because remember, the animal soul, 
The animal soul's interest is in obstructing the godly soul. The godly soul wants this kind of absolute devotion to God. Well, the animal soul, therefore, has to be somewhat strategic about that. If you really see yourself as a person, as a, as a religious person, as a devout person, um, so the animal soul has to kind of like figure out what is the way in which that I can get the person to, to realize that at the end of the day, I'm in charge here. The animal soul, the animal soul runs the show and not the, and not the godly soul. So if you think about an example of, um, say, where you have like a power relationship, which is not a good and healthy thing. But let's say you have an example of a power relationship, right? The person in power, do they have to constantly um, humiliate and beat down the person who's subordinate to them? No. What do they have to do, though, from time to time? Remind them. Remind them. And then it kind of sinks in. Okay, so what happens is that the animal soul from time to time feels like it needs to give a little bit of a, just remember who's in charge, just remember who's in charge. And what about the other 10 years? Why is it letting the person like live this devout life? That's the thing, it's letting you. It's like, and, and the, the, the third Chabad Rebbe, the Tzimach actually comments, that's an indication that the rest of that time when you're doing Torah and mitzvahs, it's the animal soul giving the godly soul permission. And if you think about that, when you examine that, you often find that we have ulterior motives in our religiosity. And so the, 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 the small occasional sin, just one second, the small occasional sin is a way of the animal soul showing the godly soul, I'm in charge. And even after the person comes back and the godly soul reasserts itself, there's still this measure of subjugation, still this measure of of. I'm not really fully in control. And that, that is manifest by the fact that we need ulterior motives and selfish things in order to help drive our religiosity. For instance, um, when we're successful in our spiritual growth, we get an ego boost. And if we don't get that ego boost, what happens to our drive to grow spiritually? And so what does that tell me? Who's really running the show? Right, the, the the animal soul has dominated, and it's saying the animal soul is like, look, I don't need to, I don't need to, 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 to completely humiliate you and abuse you and and, 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 and and to the godly soul. It's enough that from time to time I remind you that I call the shots, and the rest of the time you're doing your thing with my permission, with my approval. Yeah, you had a question first. Yeah. Isn't the whole idea of the animal soul and the godly soul that it's a struggle? Like that implies like, like a war that implies a like constant struggle back, back and forth. This is sa- sounding like, unless you're a tzaddik, like the animal soul has won. And it's like, sa- mm-hmm. sin, when you sin, it's not a sign that like, in that moment the animal soul triumphed over the godly soul. It's that, it was always like that, just like you're only seeing the effects of it now. Mm-hmm. That means it's like, we don't think about it as like one, one or the other. We think of like our lives are a constant struggle between the two. Well, that's exactly what Altrip is saying, is maybe your life isn't really a constant struggle between the two. Okay. Well, I mean, like, when I first learned about animal soul and godly soul, I didn't hear, in every person, one of them has won. Over the well, there is a third category, right, called the Bainani? Right, but we shouldn't, but most of us, like, don't you assume that you're a Rasha? You don't assume that you're a Well, you have to ask yourself. Well, when we, when we, I want to teach it in order. 
because it's putting the contrast of this is what a tzad is, this is what a rush is, and then asking yourself, okay, well, what is that space of Baini? How does one enter that space? How does one stay in that space that the rest of the Tanya is all about? Okay, in other words, what chapter 10 and chapter 11 are doing are creating kind of the book ends, the, the boundaries of the discussion, and then the rest of Tanya is going to be focusing what happens in between those two in that space. So most of the stuff you hear about Chassidus talking about the Amosol and the Godly soul is how Godly soul and Amosol play out in the life of a Bainani. Mm-hmm. And now the question is, am I a Bainani? Can I live life like a Bainani? Can I, can I move myself from out of the Rosh category into the Bainani category? Can I stay there? But we're not. So when we talk about, when we learn chapter 12 and we, we, get, we get into that, then I'll talk more about this idea that they're both fighting, they're both struggling. But the, the whole nature of being a Russia comes because the godly soul has abdicated. And even when it's fighting, I'll, I'll give you an example, political example. Um, many countries um, do not really have representative government, right? Around the world. Okay. Many countries who do not have representative government still have the structures of representative government. There are elections. There are a, some sort of a, of, of, a, of a parliament or congressional body, right? right. So why? Like if, if, the, if the government is not responsive to you know, shift in public opinion mm. at all, even on the, in other, words, in other words, we already know who's going to win the election, who's going to run the government, then what's the point of having the elections? What's the point of having all of those? Right. So what is, there's a method of domination where you give someone a sense that you are actively participating and they can feel good and go home. In other words, one of the, one of the ways that somebody can, can, can subjugate somebody else is effectively is to not push too hard. Because when you push too hard, you get pushback. So some people, their animal soul knows that if I come flat out and try and make this person a wanton sinner, the godly soul is gonna say, that's too much. And remember, the godly soul, if it, if, it, if it rises to the challenge, its power, it can easily defeat the animal soul. So what does the animal soul do to such a person's life? Right, it's, it's from it, time to time, it reminds the godly soul that it's really in charge. And it says, okay, but now go on and live your religious life and worship God and all of that, but on my terms. And, and it will push that envelope as far as it can push it, but not try to push it any further. And, and, and so there's this idea that you could have a person who's quite religious, both in the halachic sense of observance and in the sense of spiritually seeking, and yet really, it's all being dominated by the animal soul. Okay? Um, and this is something that has frightened mystics, is that who is to say that the the great sage is really a holy person. Um, there's a famous story, the Baal Shem Tov, um, where there was a man who, who, as many of these stories goes, he couldn't pay his rent, and so they threw him in the pit, because that's what they did back in the day. Who says life hasn't gotten better? <laughs> um, and there was a whole, the Jews raised money, and they re- released him, and he came to the Baal Shem Tov, Balshemtov was involved in helping him get released, and the Balshemtov had all of his disciples around, and the um, the Balshemtov asked this man to recant what he heard in the cave, and he was in this pit, this dark pit that he was cast into until someone. That's what they basically do. If you couldn't pay your rent to the local landlord, he would kidnap you and wait for other Jews to pay your ransom, and that's how he made his money back. It's very pleasant. 
So he says, well, he, 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 he um, heard these, these, these voices and they would, they would be like in pain and they would be wailing and they would, they would be getting worse and worse and worse and worse and worse, right? And then Friday, they all of a sudden would have this tremendous relief and this tremendous joy and they would celebrate, and then slowly throughout the week, that celebration would turn to the, the voices turned to like they were scared and wailing and frightened, and then till it was they were panicking on Friday, and then they would all of a sudden have this great relief again. And the Balshemtov says, so "I'll tell you what those voices are. Those voices are the, the evil spirits that live off of people's um, off of people's negative choices, the giving into the evil inclination." And there is a, a certain Jew who is very scholarly and very pious. He abstains from all pleasures of this world and he spends all of his time studying Torah and, and he doesn't indulge in food. And he, he fasts during the day and only breaks his fast at night. And in order to rejuvenate himself before Shabbos, he drinks a glass of milk. And every week, he puts the milk in a special place so that he doesn't get knocked around and somebody in the house ends up spilling the milk and he gets very upset. And so these, these demonic forces, they live off of his, they live off of, off of his, his animal soul's domination over such a pious person. Mm-hmm. And what keeps them able to, have, what keeps the animal soul having control of that is that ability to get him to lose his temper right at that moment. And then the concern is, that, well, maybe next week, maybe he's going to totally shift his whole thing. And, and then one of the Balshanto students faints because the Balshanto is referring to him. You have a person, what? One of the Baal Shem Tov students faints because he realized the Baal Shem Tov is referring to him. You have a person now who's a scholar. He would never, what happened is that he's, he's you know, I mean, he's, he's, he's physically exhausted from all of his like fasting and spiritual pursuits and studying and, and, and he wants to rejuvenate himself for Shabbos and he has this milk and the milk gets spilled because if someone accidentally knocks it over and he loses his cool, and that's what keeps his whole life, his whole godly pursuits being subjugated by, by, by some sense of self-interest and ego, which is really keeping the godly soul from really ex- expressing itself. And he was under the impression that he's like a servant of God and really devoted to God and all these things. And like, no. There's another story that Balshemtov Balshem asked his disciples to put their hands on each other's shoulders. And um, then he showed the mystical vision and they all started screaming because it was, it was quite horrific. And what they saw was an ox wearing Shabbos clothes with a strimal, eating chalant. And, and the Vashantav explained that this is a, a very pious person who, in order to fulfill the mitzvah of honoring the Shabbos, is eating meat. But his ulterior motive and his interest in the, in the physical pleasure of the meat has dominated him. And so he has become the ox that he's eating. So the mitzvahs, and, and, and the Rebbe points out in a talk that the, 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 the mitzvahs, which are not part of the person or your behavior, they're called compared to garments. He's still wearing his Shabbos clothes. He's still very pious and all this. But inside, the animalistic in, instinct is really dominating him. And it's just found an outlet that he will tolerate, which is the indulgence on Shabbos. And this is something that 
if you just look at dry halachic Judaism, you don't have this. Like, I'm doing what I'm supposed to be doing. I'm talking, like, I'm, I'm trying to grow spiritual. What's the problem? But you could have all of that, and at the end of the day, really, that's just a tactic of the animal soul keeping the person, um, the godly soul, subjugated. And from time to time, if the godly soul, if the animal soul needs to, it will cause that person to, to stumble in a small minor sin just to keep that domination in check. And so all of the growth and spiritual things in between those things is on some level with the animal soul's permission. And the godly soul is not fighting back. It's not really rebelling. It just feels like it is. It's like people sometimes use, I signed a petition, I must really care. Well, I mean, you know, signing a petition is not really doing a lot. I'm not saying you should sign a petition, but like, if you really cared, maybe you would like, I don't know, change how you spend your money and how you spend your time and, you know, And, and there's this, there, there is, so the Alter Rebbe is kind of implying, just one second, a kind of a radicalism that if your godly soul is not subjugated, then you don't give the animal soul that kind of control. If it has that kind of control in a little bit, it means you're, you're playing along. And the fact that we sometimes feel like I put in a little effort and I overcome, that itself could even be just like, you know, letting people who have elections and feeling like they participate and they don't feel like they're living in a, in a dictatorship because they're allowed to have some amount of participation, even though at the end of the day, ultimately, they don't have any real say in the matter. Yeah? I know we haven't gotten to the Benham yet, um, but I, okay, so I can't remember exactly which source, but I remember learning that like a tzaddik is someone who is mostly mitzvahs, a rosh is someone who has mostly others, and a benoni is like, Someone has roughly the same amount of mitzvahs and embarrassed. This is like completely different to this. Correct. So that in chapter one, in chapter one, the Alter Rebbe discusses the sources that say that. The sources are the Gemara, Talmud, and the Tractate of Rosh Hashanah, and the Rambam's Laws of Tshuva. And there the context is discussing reward and punishment. In other words, at what point does God feel that a person deserves to be punished? Um, and by the way, the punishment is death, just in case you're wondering. <laughs> Now, at what point does God feel that this is a wicked person? Remove them from the earth. The punishment is death. Every year, Rosh Hashanah judges everybody and decides whether or not they'll live or die. Now, sometimes people die because like, their mission in life is over for now. So just because a person dies doesn't mean that they were wicked. But if somebody is wicked, then God's like, you know what? Like, what do you do if you have an employee that's just not worth the cost of keeping around? So at what point does God say, this person is just too wicked to keep around? There's no, we're done. So that was when their sins are greater than their mitzvahs. Okay. At what, what, at what do you need in order to have that God thinks it's worthwhile keeping you around? Is basically you're doing more good than bad. And what if it's split 50-50? He gives you till Yom Kippur to, to fix that. And if you don't fix it by Yom Kippur, then um, goodbye. But what you'll notice is that that, doesn't, that has nothing to reflect on what's going on inside the person. That's a totally different context. In other words, you could have the same word being used to mean something differently. So if I were to say someone is a good person, you say, what do you mean they're a good person? And I talk about all the things they do to help people. I'm not actually talking about what's going on inside of them. I'm talking about their effect on society around them. And they might be a very good person in terms of effect society around them. And inside, they might be an arrogant person who everything they're doing is merely for the sake of their own um, ego boost and, and, and the accolades they get, and they're really a petty, shallow person. They're just intelligent enough to realize that 
they can get their ego boost in a more sustainable way by you know acting in a way that benefits others in society, right? We call these people, um, you know, politicians in mm. modern society, right? <laughs> so I will help you, and I will make government programs, and we will like, but like, what's really driving that is like generally not some sort of altruistic interest for everybody else, or not entirely that. So. But that has nothing to do with the person. And the whole point of Hasidus is to expose what's going on on the level of the actual person. Who am I in my relationship with God? Who am I in terms of myself? And so I might be doing a lot of mitzvahs and bringing about a lot of good in the world. And, you know, God's like, wow, this person is doing so much more good in the world than evil. They may have even doing almost no evil at all. And that's amazing and that's wonderful and that's great. But in terms of the relationship be- between their souls, I mean, in terms of whether the godly soul is able to really live the life that it's trying to live in this person's body, that's not happening at all. Because, because the, whole, the whole Judaism has been corrupted and made about something other than God, about their ego boost, about their comfort, about their sense of, of moral and ethical satisfaction, all sorts of things that could be happening. And in order to maintain that sense that who's in charge here, from time to time and occasion, the animal soul will get that person to transgress ever so slightly. And so that person always has that little bit of a sense that like God is not the, 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 the final arbiter of, of their life and their reality. Proof being, they slipped up here, they slipped up there. Not, on, not something they completely didn't know about, they did know about, but that, that moment of weakness is illustrative of some underlying issue. Um, I'll use a medical example, okay? And then a story of the Alter Rebbe. There was a, uh, there's, there's a thing about medicine, which is that there's symptoms and there are diseases. Right? Those are two different things. I don't mean infections. Infections are not the same thing as a disease. Like you could have an infection and it's fine. Your body's fighting it off. I don't mean that. You could have an actual disease. So for instance, what are these symptoms of high cholesterol? Your That's not a symptom. The symptom, like, you know, you can actually... What's the symptom of high cholesterol? There aren't any, unfortunately. Oh. Yeah. Your arteries just keep getting clogged and clogged and clogged and clogged and clogged and clogged until one day. What? <laughs> then they're, until, they're, until you have one of these major symptoms, like a heart attack or that kind of stuff. Yeah. So you have personally feel perfectly healthy, and the only way you can do some lab work with the blood to figure out the cholesterol levels, but, like, you can feel perfectly healthy and have extremely high cholesterol. Right? Yeah, it's very scary. <laughs> Okay. Um, now, then you ever have like, will you ever get sick and you have like a really bad fever? Not a dangerously high fever, but a really bad fever and your body just aches and you're tired and you can't do anything and you just feel miserable. So you now take that, like you feel like, I'm really sick. And the answer is, not necessarily. You're actually that, all those symptoms might be your body actually dealing with the disease and it's, it's very unpleasant right but if you want right so you have something which is a very serious problem and you don't actually feel the manifestation of it all and you can have something which feels really 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 horrible right but what's really underlying that is not such a big deal right and so there's always this question is that once you go deeper something that looks really good might turn out to be really bad and something that looks really bad might turn out to be mm-hmm. actually perfectly good and this is one of the things that we call, like, there's a dimension of the Torah called the revealed part of the Torah, and the dimension of the Torah we call the, Chassidim call it the inner part of the Torah, non-Chassidim call it the hidden part of the Torah. 
um, both names have, have, have reasons, but the idea is that the inner part, which is for many people hidden, does things can look very different than on the outer parts. You have a person and they, once in a while, they give in in a moment of momentary weakness and do something without even great lust or anything, right? It's like, okay, this person is like really righteous. They're really good. They're keeping everything. They're doing everything, right? And then you go inside and the animal soul is just dominating the whole person's life. The person, the animal soul, the, 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 it, it, the, the, there is not a sense of absolute devotion to God in that person's life. And that little sin was the, is, the, is, the, is, the, is, the, is the one little marker of that. And if you look a little caref- more carefully, you can find that in the person's need for ulterior motive in order for their spiritual growth and observance. And by the way, in contrast, just to set up that contrast, you get a person who's not observant through no fault of their own, so they didn't grow up religious, so they really don't know. Um, both they don't know the halachas, or even if they do know the halachas, they don't, know the, they don't really know for themselves this is what God really wants. But those one or two things that they do know that God wants, if for them, they are absolutely devoted, and they never, like, right? And so you have this person is maybe not eating kosher food, and they're not keeping Shabbos and all of these things, but the one thing they know there's no, the, 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 there's, there's a radical devotion inside, even when they struggle, even when it's hard. And so you have to ask yourself, on the level of the person, who's, who's more godly and who's closer to God? Which is a very different question than asking, like, you know, in terms of your behavior, what are you doing? And there's a separate question, which is like, you know, how much good and evil you're bringing into the world through your choices, right? So you can use these terms tzaddik and rasha, wicked and righteous in different ways. And here the altar says, we want to talk, we're using the terms to describe who the person is, the character of the individual. And rasha means that the animal soul has subjugated or has defeated the godly soul. You can defeat somebody, right? You know, like, use a little historical example. Um, there were the British and there were the Dutch. They both colonized. If you were a person who was a, a native person, would you would prefer to be colonized by the British or the Dutch? Historically. I mean, you probably, probably prefer not to be colonized at all, mm-hmm. but if you had to pick. When? What? What we were talking about? Mm, the age of colonialism. The Dutch. You prefer the Dutch? If you're a What? No, you're, you're a native person. It's like, oh. you're, like you live in, say, Africa. You're an African tribe. British. The British. Because the British have a pretense of we are bringing civilization to the natives. Whereas the Dutch have no such pretense. We are extracting everything we can from you and we have no care whatsoever. Now, they're both quite you know, exploited, right? It's not a good thing, right? But there's a difference in the quality of life and, you know, and, and like, there's different kinds of slavery, right? You could have the slavery you know, in the American South and the slavery in ancient Greece. They're both slavery. They're both not good. You're both not a free person, but they're very different, hmm. right? Um, and so the idea is that sometimes the animal soul subjugates the godly soul in a way that gives the godly soul kind of a plausible deniability. I'm, look, I'm really righteous. I'm doing the things I'm supposed to be doing. I want someone to slip up. It's not so bad. And, and just you can live under the illusion that as, as if the godly soul is free, but you're not really paying attention to the truth. And so that once-in-a-while thing is indicative of the larger problem, even though it doesn't seem like such a big deal. So this is the higher end of the Russia. This is like the... Now, the, the Rebbe points out in, in a note, 
that you could have actually there's one other rush that's even higher, which is the rush who never sins, because as we mentioned yesterday, the opportunity hasn't arisen. So they're, they're, they, they haven't sinned yet. Okay? It's just a question of the animals are finding the right opportunity to find the thing for that person to stumble in. Okay. Yes? Two things. One is, what if a um, person sees, like, I want to do this good thing because I want to think I'm a good person, mm-hmm. but I don't want that to be the reason. Like, in other words, the thoughts there, mm-hmm. the selfish desires there, but the person wants to be godly, but... You know, and, and like praise to do that, but like can't just can't control the urge to. So there's a there's a very important observation that the second Chabad Rebbe made, which is you have to differentiate between things which are motivational, and things which are um, responses. Okay, things that you you know there's what you know there's. There's a very big difference between pursuing something. Let's say I want to do lots of mitzvahs so that I get recognition from other people. Let's use that as the example. Well, then I'm, I'm, I'm being controlled by my animal soul. But what if I'm doing mitzvahs and, my, and what ensues from that is a sense of pride from the recognition I get from other people. But that, is not, but that never becomes the motivating force for me. Right. Well, then, then, then my, you can't say my godly soul is subjugated to my animal soul. You can't say my animal soul is subjugated either. That would be, so a bainani... The non-Russia, right, could experience all sorts of things, but they never become a dominating force in the person's life. And the, the, the things that they experience without controlling them. And so you have to ask the question is, okay, I have two mitzvahs. One mitzvah I'm going to get a big egos from, one mitzvah I'm not going to get any egos from. If I find that my, in reality, my actual investment in the mitzvah that I don't get a big egos from is less than the mitzvah I do get a big egos boost from, well, that means that what's really calling the shots here ultimately is the animal soul. You mean if your enjoyment of it? No, my investment, the, the oh, effort and energy and engagement. Mm-hmm. Okay? Right. Um, whereas if my investment is the same, although one, I get a big kick from afterwards and one I don't, well, okay, I mean, no one said the animal soul was subjugated to the godly soul either, right? So, you, you, you know, like a good way where you see this difference very, very clearly is very few people pray. I don't mean talking about this, just like actually pour their heart out to God in order to feel proud of themselves that they prayed. That's like a very rare thing to happen. Like, I want to feel proud of myself, so I'm going to study the entire Talmud. Like, people do that. I want to feel proud of myself, so I'm going to pour my heart out to God. That doesn't usually happen. But if you do pour your heart out to God, what happens afterwards usually? The person feels like there is a certain, like I, I accomplished, right? So, so you see there's a difference there between whether that, that pride, that ego boost is, is driving it or just ensues as a result. Is it pride or is it satisfaction from connection? The, 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 the difference between, the difference between, um, Pride and satisfaction from connection, in in from the from the perspective of Hasidus, is just a matter of degree, because connection is not about satisfaction. Connection is an end in of itself. It's not a means to something. Um, I, I use this as a very sad analogy, but it illustrates the point. Um, my one of my sons had a classmate who had brain cancer, and um, he was for the last year and a half of his life he was very very sick in the hospital. 
and the parents were in the hospital all the time. Like one parent was just always there. Um, and that is not a that is not a pleasant experience. Um, and I wouldn't say that there's any you know satisfaction that comes from that. Um, so why were they there? So, to be there for their son and for themselves to right. In other words, in other words, in other words, to not be there. The, 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 I think. I think. I think. I think. Sometimes this doesn't sound like a language game, but I don't. But I think it's not a language game. I think a more accurate way of putting it is that the question of why were they there shouldn't be thought in terms of a, of a means and an end. It should be like to not be there would to not be who they are. Okay. They are this child's parents. Now. If they, to volitionally not be at his bedside as he's dying, it means, means you're denying it. I'm denying this is my child. I'm denying that I'm the parent. I'm denying who I am. I'm denying who he is. Like it, it's not a it's not a thing to it. You know, it has all sorts of effects. And and you see this in these kinds of things where like people say, "Go home, get some sleep." You're not helping the situation by just sitting in the chair, and they can't leave. Mm-hmm. So connection, when it's really connection, is something in and of itself. Mm-hmm. The satisfaction you get from connection is a kind of a pride. It is a kind of an ego boost. It's just subtle enough that it doesn't feel so bad. Right? And so, so there's an actual famous discourse of the, of, the, of the Rebbe where the Rebbe says when a person's service of God, they get caught up in feeling a sense of, of, of satisfaction from the fact that they're successfully serving God, they're rebelling against God. Now, if that feeling comes to you, that's not rebelling against God. It's, it's when you start... Right, that's, that's, that's again the element of the subjugation of the animal soul. And the animal soul gets the person to, to, to be in control. And so what I want you to understand is like, like the description here of the lofty end of the Russia is you can't look and say, look at what I'm doing, look at what I'm accomplishing, look at all of that stuff. You have to look really, really inside and ask a very uncomfortable question, which is, what is the... What is the ultimate arbiter of my life inside? And if it's not the godly soul, that's because the godly soul abdicated, gave up, and allowed the animal soul to dominate. And now at that point, it could be I'm very religious, I'm very pious, and I'm doing a lot of good in the world, and I'm a, I'm a wonderful spiritual and ethical human being, but, the, but, the, but the, the absoluteness of the godly soul has been subjugated. Yeah. So, so I get that, the absoluteness, but I guess what I still have a confusion over, and maybe it's because it gets into the vein in me or not, but the absoluteness, yes, that it's 100% second by second every single moment, but couldn't a person shift like sometimes have the godly soul be in charge, and then there's a sh- and it's not that, oh, it's always there, ready to, always in control, the animal soul is always in control, just ready to show its power again, but that there's actually literally... There, there, there could be shifts, but the shifts are going to be much more radical. Um, there, there is something, I guess I'll mention this now. There is an idea that in certain areas of life, you could be a Russia and not in other areas of life. So for instance, the average religious Jew, if we were to not look at their life as a whole, but were to look at an area of life, is, you know, not a Russia when it comes to eating on Yom Kippur. Like, they're just not doing it. It doesn't matter how hungry they are, right? Like that's just like absolute, right? Mm-hmm. Right, and it's not. 
you know, you know, so, so that, like, like that's a space where the animal soul just, again, for the average religious Jew, has no power. It has, right? But what the altar is talking about is the whole person holistically. But you could also then take that idea and you could look at a particular arena of life and say, okay, when it comes to, and so yeah, you know, most Orthodox Jews when it comes to driving on Shabbos, not all of Shabbos, but driving on Shabbos, electricity on Shabbos, certain things are just like, like, it's, it's, it, 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 no matter how inconvenient or how much I wish or how much I want or how tempted I am, it's like, no. But, but, but that's again, that, 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 that's, that's, that, but if something is flipping back and forth based on like, how inspired I am, how much mood I, or what mood I'm in, or how tempted I am, well, then that means that the godly soul has not brought itself to bear, and so it's being dominated. It's just a very, very soft domination. So is satisfaction is a bad thing? If it's a driving force, it's a bad thing. There's always a question you have to ask with chassidus, which is a very important question, which is, takes us out of this, which is there's a difference between a bad thing and a forbidden thing. And so the question is, anything that is not forbidden, you have to ask yourself, setting aside that it itself might be a bad thing, what is the alternative? I'm gonna give you an example. Um, Is it a good thing in and of itself to um, bribe somebody? Like all things being equal, that's not a good thing. Right, that's extrinsic motivation. Right? Okay, but now, if the if it's not forbidden, so obviously like bribing a judge is forbidden, right? Well, what about bribing children to do the right thing? That's not forbidden. Now, well, so what's the alternative? If I don't bribe the children, what's the alternative? Is the alternative that they'll develop an intrinsic appreciation of the importance of doing the thing? Well, then I certainly shouldn't bribe them. Or is the alternative to develop the bad habit of not doing the thing that they're supposed to be doing, in which case I definitely should bribe them because, right? So anything that is not forbidden, the question of its place in a person's life can never be about its intrinsic holiness or unholiness. It has to be about in contrast to what? Okay? Um, you know, I, I like to use this following little thing. There's a, there's a little thing that, that, that's kind of popular in some Chabad houses called, on Sukkot to do something called pizza in the hut. Right, which is a play on Pizza Hut, right? Okay. Is that really respectful to the sukkah? Like, think Why about... Not? You're well, eating in the sukkah. I'm not, I'm not talking about eating pizza. I'm talking about... What is a sukkah? A sukkah is a mitzvah. A mitzvah is the infinite presence of God, right? right? A, a, a sukkah is a holy place. Yeah. Um, you're, not, you're, you're, you're not allowed to leave dirty dishes in a sukkah because it's a sacred place. Look, after you finish eating, you have to clean the dishes out. You're not allowed to bring pots and pans into the sukkah. You're not allowed to cook in a sukkah. You're not allowed to wash dishes in a sukkah. Okay? It's a sacred place. Okay? Now, given that, is it really so respectful to, like, you know, to have a little, like, copycat Pizza Hut logo, like, Pizza Hut, sukkah in the pizza in the hut, and, like, I don't think that that's the most respectful way to treat a sukkah. Is it forbidden? Now you have to ask your question. Are you going to get more people to come into the sukkah and eat in the sukkah and participate in the mitzvah and learn to appreciate the mitzvah and do the mitzvah? Well, that depends who you're dealing with now, doesn't it, right? If you have a bunch of like, you know, 
old chassidim from the from the shtetl, you know, I, I don't think so. You're not getting get right. But if you're talking about your average, you know, um, American Jew, probably you know things that are cute and funny and associative, right? Okay. Now you might be crossing a line if you start using Christmas imagery, right? Because that's already getting into other religions and stuff, and I mean that enters a realm of forbidden. You ask a rabbi. So that's the, so the same thing with all this stuff. I'm like, like, so the fact that I get a sense of satisfaction out of something, it it means that my motivation when I become when and that's and that's motivating me. That means that now it's about my animal soul. And my animal soul is dominating. Fine, okay. But now, what's the alternative? Now, what's the ideal? I can strive for the ideal, but in practice, you know what the alternative is, right? Um, so if, if the ideal is I strive to actually make my godly soul as great as it can be. But if I'm not in a place where I can make that switch like that, then maybe I should get satisfaction out of doing things that are at least ultimately going to bring me on the right path. Walter has a discourse about this. He uses the example of the chaff around the wheat. If you were to, the chaff around the wheat is not good. You can't, don't eat it. Um, in fact, you can't, the, you can't tie the produce when the chaff is still on. So when you tie it, when you take the truma and the mice, you make it holy. And you can't do that when the chaff is still there. But in order for it to grow, you need the chaff. And so he says the, chaff, the wheat, the grain is like the soul. And a person does need a little bit of arrogance and a little bit of, of this type of stuff as a protective thing to give the soul enough time to do enough mitzvahs, enough things that will give it the capacity to make those kinds of shifts. But you need to know like where you are in life. Is, are you at a stage where, like, where are you, is the wheat still growing in the field? Keep the chaff on. Right? Don't go through your wheat field and start taking the chaff off. The, the wheat will start rotting or withering in the heat or whatever. But once the wheat is harvested, you gotta go take the chaff off because it, it's not intrinsically good. What does the wheat growing represent? So let's say you, for instance, you have a person who doesn't really, f- the, 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 the godly soul is not a very vibrant part of their life at all. Subjugate not they don't feel that sense of connection to God, that sense of, of wanting to turn to God, the sense of wanting to serve God. It just doesn't, it doesn't resonate deeply in them. But this sense of satisfaction, they know that they're doing the divine purpose and they're fulfilling their purpose and the sense of self-importance they get from that will motivate them to live a life which will give the godly soul more vitality through more mitzvahs and more that, then maybe they should be doing that. And so it becomes an issue. It's, it, it, the, 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 the question here now is, 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 are you doing that pragmatically? Or are you really in the grasp of it? Because I can say I'm using this thing as an ulterior motive as a means to an end because I'm aspiring to, to the, the true motive. And so it ends up becoming very nuanced. But for the purpose of the time, we need to understand is like this, is that the subjugation of the godly soul by the animal soul is not measured by the frequency of sin. It's measured by the fact that the sin is possible. That the person is in a state within themselves that should they have a moment of weakness, they would sin. And that means overall, the animal soul is the dominating force in that person's life. And therefore the godly soul is playing second fiddle. Is there a way that a person could be motivated to do, to do godly things? Not, not by satisfaction or anything personal, but just because they're not permission? Sure. Like every person could reach that? Yeah. Sure. Is it's it just it, not easy. <laughs> is answering how too long? Is answering how to do that take a long time? I mean, the answer to that is that's what all of Hasidus is about. 
um, you know, but there's not like a, a, a there, there, there's not a there's not a simple answer to it. Like just do do these three things, and then voila, magically it happens. So any it could give you three simple steps, but when you implement those steps in life, you realize that each step is a whole world. Each step is a whole thing. Um, is there like a general? I mean, I guess, like, yeah, in order to be truthfully godly devoted, you need to actually be completely devoted to God. But, like, does it does it count as anything if you just, like, have the mindset? Of, or at least you know that you're here for Hashem and not here for yourself. And, like, yeah. Of course that counts for something. What does it count for? Oh. I'll tell you a story. There once was a great rabbi named Rabbi Elazar, the son of Rabbi Shimon. Rabbi Elazar, the son of Rabbi Shimon, just so you know, he is one of these complete tzaddikim. So keep this in mind. He has no animal soul. That's right. right. He can, he, he, there's nothing in him, even, even subjugated, that would drive him to do anything ungodly. Okay? And he was one time traveling home after studying Torah. And he sees an extremely ugly man. Phenomenally ugly. And the man approaches him and says, Shalom Aleichem, Rabbi. And Rabbi Elazar responds, Is everyone where you come from so ugly? <laughs> like, you're really ugly. It's like, a, it's like a, a thing for everybody or just you? So the man says, Well, why don't you go tell the craftsman who made me that he's made an ugly vessel? At which point Rabbi Elazar realized that he had done something wrong and he apologized, but the man refused to forgive him. And so Rabbi Elazar followed him and kept saying, I'm so sorry, please forgive me. And in the end, a man comes to his town and all the townspeople see Rabbi Elazar coming, they go out to greet him and they say, wow, Rabbi Elazar's here. And he says, that guy, there should, there should be no more like him. <laughs> and other people say, why do you say such a thing about Rabbi Elazar? And then you know he's a great Torah scholar? He says, well, this is, this is what he, he did to me. He insulted me. He said, I'm ugly. And so they say, but you should forgive him anyway because he's a great Torah scholar. He says, I'll forgive him on a condition. What's the condition? Guess. But if you take me with him to No, no, no. Condition is, is that he don't make a habit of doing what he did to me. <laughs> So the story is kind of weird. Because first off, why is a complete sadic saying something? You're really ugly. Why is it? Was everyone away from him? It's almost like he wasn't insulted. You're just trying to teach him a lesson. But we have to understand, like, what was, what was going on with every lesson? And also, like, what do you mean you shouldn't make a habit of it? Like, it's okay to do it once in a while. Okay. So the thing is like this. Um, Sometimes the good inside a person is very, very locked away. And if the good inside a person is locked away, there is unfortunately only one way to get at the good inside a person, which is to break, and I would emphasize this word, break through the barriers that are concealing it. And breaking is very um, unpleasant. Breaking is an act of violence, conceptually, right? Think of a walnut. How do you get the nut? How do you get the, the actual nut out of the walnut? You have to crack the shell. You break the shell, right? Yes, you can smash it. Okay, right? Okay, so God sometimes does this to people. I have a friend. Um, 
from yeshiva many, many, many years ago. Um, and he was a friend of my yeshiva. Now we have gone our separate ways because that's how life works. But So he was really into his car. He was not a religious person. He was very into like the whole rap scene and he had a car and he was like, with all the like little things like the, getting it. I think the expression is used as tricked out, but I'm not sure if that's the right expression. But, and um, after like really investing a lot of money in his car, he got into a very bad car accident. The car was totaled and he was severely hospitalized. And um, then he started to think about like, what's the point in life? And he ended up becoming religious and the whole thing. And they say that was like a very important event in his life, okay? Um, there's something in psychology that's called um, post-traumatic, what's the next word? Stress. No. Disorder. <laughs> no. PTSD. Post-traumatic Stress growth. Disorder. Growth. Oh, awesome. Growth. This is one of these things where the psychological literature and the public con- consciousness are very, the most common response to, tra- to trauma, psychological trauma is growth. The overwhelming number, the overwhelming, it's like, I don't remember the numbers, it's something like 80, 90% of people that experience a tra- tra- an event which is psychologically traumatic and results in major growth in that person's life. There is a small minority, although it is, it's a, it, it's a, you know, for, on population level, ends up being a lot of people that actually, that creates serious mental illness problems that result from it. But anyway, so the, this is the thing, that breaking is something, it's, it's a, you can break the shell and you get out what's inside and okay. So you have a person who's ugly. Not their face is contorted, but they're spiritually ugly. They are very ugly. They are crass, coarse, despicable. Like there's, no, there's nothing in how they live their life that acknowledges any of the goodness inside of them. Well, what happens if that person is give, put a mirror and sees how, how despicable as a human being they are? What does that do to them? It breaks them, which is necessary for growth, right? So Rabbi Elazar, out of his great love for his fellow Jew, sees this person who is, you know, this, in, in this, 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 this horrific spiritual state, a state of, of, of absolute ugliness, and he says, you're phenomenally ugly. Like, are you from a place of just like, is that everybody like you? So was he, he wasn't sinning. It wasn't doing something that was someone's coming. It was, this was coming entirely from a place of caring for this person. Okay. However, what was the man's response? This is going to be the answer to your question. What was the man's response? Go tell the craftsman. No. Go tell the craftsman who made me you made an ugly vessel. What's a vessel? A vessel is something that has a purpose. Something with a purpose. So what is this man aware of? that he was created for a purpose. Well, if he's aware, consciously, he's created for a purpose, he doesn't need to be broken. In other words, Rabbi Lezer made, made misjudged. He thought this person is so, so caught up in this spiritual ugliness that he has no sense of his inner goodness. And therefore, what, does he need to, what needs to happen to him? He needs to be broken. And the man responds, he says, I, uh, I know that I'm not living, a, I, I, I have a purpose. Yeah? Now, he's blaming God for his failings, he's got all sorts of problems, but at the end of the day, the thing that's on the tip of his tongue is, go tell the craftsman who made me, you made an ugly vessel. Right? There's a, he has a conscious awareness, he was created for a purpose. That doesn't make him now a lofty spiritual person, but it means there's what to work with. Well, if there's what to work with, you don't need to break him. 
And so even though he's a perfect tzaddik, a perfect tzaddik can still misjudge a situation. Right? And so he apologizes. Now the man is not exactly the most lofty spiritual person in the world, right? So he doesn't engage in the Torah commandment of forgiving until he's put upon by his peers. Right? But then he at least has the awareness to realize that like, what Rabbi Elazar did has a place. He said you should make a habit of it. You should be a little more conscientious. Don't, that shouldn't be your go-to approach. Okay? So now to answer your question, if I'm at least aware in my thought that I was created for a purpose, that means there's what to work with, right? And if I'm not aware of that, that's a very dangerous thing. So even though this is a Russia, this is a Russia, and, this, like, and we'll see when we go talk about the, the, the lowest level of Russia, there, there's stuff, there's what to work with. The real, the real dangerous situation is when there's nothing left to work with. When whatever good there is has been so concealed you can't see it at all. It's vanished. Okay. But even just an acknowledgement in thought, which we're going to get to, is it, it, yeah. so we have to be careful about being overly judgmental. Right? And that's the problem, is that the Altrebi is not trying to say you're a, you're a, you're, um, a bad person in a, in a sense that I look down upon you. What he's describing is that the state of your soul is not a good place. That's not a good place to be. But if I'm aware that I'm created for a purpose, that means I could actually become more motivated to that. I could try and change things. I could try and grow things. And maybe I can get that my godly soul will no longer be subjugated. Right? But it's not, a, it's not a point system that you're being rewarded or punished based on this kind of stuff. God doesn't reward you or punish you for the godly soul being subjugated or not subjugated. He rewards you or punish you for, for what actually you do in the world. And if you do a lot, a lot of evil, that's not good. But you can do a lot of good, and, and unfortunately, the godly soul is subjugated, and then we should be aware of that. So it's more diagnostic than judgmental. Right? So I, if I go to a person and I come as a, 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 as a medical professional and I tell them that you are sick, right? I'm not, I'm, not, I'm not judging them, but yes, the body is not as it should be, right? And, and that's necessary to know in order to heal that, right? If I'm under the impression that everything is fine because look, I love doing Torah mitzvahs and I'm growing and it's so spiritual and I'm completely ha- unaware of the fact that my godly soul has been subjugated, well, that's not a good thing. I should, you know, that's, I should be made aware of that. And yes, it's not a positive thing that my godly soul has been subjugated. So certainly having an awareness of something, even if I don't feel it, is, 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 it's, that, that's so important. I mean, one of the most important things a child can grow up with is a framework for thinking about themselves. Um, like, you know, if, if a child grows up with a framework that I was put in the world for the mission, and that's the framework which they think about themselves, there's always what to work with. But if the person, they don't have that, they're like, I exist, and like, things are sometimes pleasant and things are sometimes unpleasant. All I want to do is like, avoid the unpleasantness and have as much pleasantness as possible. And that's really the framework of how they think about themselves. That's a very, very dangerous state of affairs. And this is one of the reasons why the Rebbe wanted that in, in secular society, there should be a moment of silence. Because people should at least, as children, children in school should at least be, have this sense that you should have to like, devote at least a few minutes to thinking about like, why are you here? And your parents, your, your, your religious leaders, someone have to like, what am I supposed to think about during those two minutes? Like, why am I, like, what's going on in life? It's not just, you know, 
So it's very important, these kinds of things, of, 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 of how you think about yourself and, and what, what the storyline is. But that doesn't necessarily mean that you're living up to it. It doesn't mean that you're, that, that you're, that you're serving your purpose, right? The man was aware that he, he was a, a vessel made by God for a purpose. And he was also a very, you know, ugly person at the same time. You could have that. All right. So that's this idea of frequency. The, the, the frequency or the, the, the fact that it happens once in a while, it doesn't mean that sometimes the animal soul defeats the godly soul, the rest of the time the godly soul is winning. It means sometimes the animal soul makes it clear who's really in charge. But that, that domination is, is, is implicitly there all along. Okay. Now, um, we have five minutes, so we're not going to get through that much. Now, one of the interesting things here he says is that the, this might happen only... In one of the garments of the soul. The garments of the soul are the different kinds of things that the soul, we have volitional control over. Meaning that I can just choose to do or not to do. I can choose to do an action or not do an action. I don't need, I don't need to work on it. I can choose to say something or not to say something. I need to work on it. And this one is a little bit more um, tricky, but is nonetheless true. You can choose to think or not think something. Okay? Simple example. Um, When you are driving and it's very stormy, and can you keep like your mind from wandering to all sorts of other stuff and focus on what you're doing? Mm-hmm. Okay, right. Um, and that that's something you can you can you can choose to do. Um, I once gave the following analogy: um, soldiers in urban combat. A standard way that they work is that three. Teams of three go into a room. Urban combat is like you're fighting inside a city. So you have to go with house by house, room by room. It's very dangerous. So a standard thing they do is go in groups of three into a room. So let's say this is the door. So the first soldier goes in and they go down low and they cover like this third of the room. For like, for an angle. like everything up to like say there, that side of the room is the first soldier. The second soldier comes in right behind them and they're covering everything up to say with the edge of the whiteboard. And the last soldier would go around and like cover the, here this room is a little bit trickier because it's got that back part. Okay, so each soldier is covering a third of the room. Now what happens if the soldier is covering this third of the room, sees someone on that third of the room pointing a gun at their head? What are they supposed to do? You have a soldier who's covering this side of the room, sees out of the corner of his eye someone in that side of the room pointing a gun at his head. What? He's supposed to do nothing. Why? Because the, right, right. the other soldier is covering that part of the room. And if I now put my attention, so now I have two people on this side, and no one's covering this, and then we all die. And I gave, many, many years ago, I gave this in the women's, said this in women's class, and I really fleshed it out, and the whole thing about this. And the girl's like, that's not real. Like, there's no way you can do that. And one of the other girls um, was actually, um, had been a combat soldier in, in the Israeli army. And she's like, no, no, that's actually how it works. That, that you really do, you it's train. You, right, so you learn to control your thought, right? Because that's where it starts. It's, it's not controlling your hands. It's not controlling your mouth. It's controlling your thought, right? My thought is to focus on what's going on here, and you can do that. It's, it, 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 it's just kind of a, right? Now, like anything, like I can choose to live very heavy things, but I have to choose to do so. If I don't choose to do so, I won't do it. I can, can choose to control my thoughts, but I have to choose to do so. So thought, speech, and action, one of the reasons they're called garments is because we have volitional control over them. Like your clothes, you can take them on and off at will. As opposed to other things ourselves, we don't have direct volitional control. 
if something doesn't make sense to me, I can't just decide it makes sense to me. I have to really contemplate and ponder it before it's going to make sense to me. If I don't like you, I can't just decide to like you. I'm going to have to really get to know you differently or interact with you differently or work on myself to make that change, right? So if you think about the body, if you, you know, the body is too big or too small, you don't just get to decide to change that volitionally. I mean, you could exercise more, eat more in different ways to make your body bigger or smaller, but you don't just like change it the way you can change your clothes. So the garments are things we have these visual control over. And what's interesting here, he says that this, you have a person whose sin only shows up in one of these garments, only in deed or only in speech or only in thought. And that's weird. Like, why would it be limited to a particular garment? And the reason is because there's a way in which each of the garments seems like not as big of a deal as the others. So let's use, I'll use the example. A person who, like the thing about the hangnail, and it's not even Shabbos yet, you just already lit candles. You're like, it, it's very easy for a person to say, well, it's not like I'm a, I'm not a, it's not like I'm a bad person. It's not like I'm, I'm fantasizing between all sorts of things that are forbidden, right? It's not like, it's just, it was like, it's a momentary lapse, right? And you're not even into it. It's just, it's almost on the level of just, you you, you just let the instinct go go through a little bit. And so there's a way in which a person, the the animal soul can get the person to sin because they can rationalize that a sin indeed without the thought behind it, without the engagement in speech, it's, it's not a big deal. But you can make the other, you could, right? then you have the thing in, 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 you could have a different thing whereas in, like people say, well, it's not like I'm doing it, I'm just talking about it, right? right? So you see the same thing there, right? Do it, if you do it, that's like a big deal. I don't, I don't do anything. I'm just talking about it, right? right? And so there's a way in which different people, the animal soul knows that for this person, they have, a, the, the, they can, they can get the person to have a tolerance for sin because they're downplaying the significance of that garment relative to the others. And there are things like, there are people who will sin in certain things that they'll never talk about. And the reason is because when you talk about something, it becomes much more real to you. This is why the reasons why we have, say, the mitzvah of confessing our sins. Like, I did the sin, that didn't bother me. I know, I, I remember doing the sin and that doesn't bother me. But to say out loud and talk about it is like, makes it very real. On the other hand, sometimes people are like, oh, I'm not doing anything, I'm just talking about it. So there's a way in which each garment for different people subjectively can feel like not such a big deal, and so the sin can only show up even in that garment. And it's again this idea of the animal soul can be very creative and clever and subtle in, in knowing how far to push the subjugation, what area to push the subjugation. Okay, so we're going to stop here. Next week we will continue talking about some of the other things. We'll, we'll talk about the idea that thought that contemplating sin is more serious than actual sin, which is not intuitive. You would think doing the sin is worse than thinking about it, but the text here says not. Um, and then we'll talk about how this person does tshuva and yet still stays a Russia. Hey. So it's not exciting. Mm-hmm. I told you the chapter is not that uplifting. Um, okay. Um, tomorrow, questions.